Hi everyone, welcome to the Simple Money Podcast. This is Pranshu. And this is Sindhuri. We're excited to launch the first episode of the Simple Money Podcast. We're going to be talking about the world of personal finance, macroeconomics, and hopefully a fascinating take on issues that investors like you and I should be thinking about. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at two big topics. Firstly, Pranshu is going to use his finance degree to explain a few words that I have trouble understanding, like current account deficit and why the price of oil is so intertwined with it and how rising oil prices have brought India to the brink of economic collapse more than once and whether or not that scenario has a possibility of unfolding again in the future. We're also going to unpack some of the buzz surrounding India's latest episode of large-scale financial fraud. Punjab National Bank, Nirav Modi, letters of credit. We're going to discuss all of this, the implications it has for India's nationalized banks and capitalism at large. And finally, we're going to share some of our favorite money-related poetry from decades and years ago. Excited for it. Me too. Good evening. The current account deficit, which in de-jargonized term means a difference between import and exports of goods and services of the country in the second quarter of the current fiscal, that is July to September 2012, reached an alarming level of 5.4%. People still remember the crisis in 1991 when the current account deficit hit 3% of the GDP and India came within weeks of running out of foreign currency. India was so, Pranch, you wrote a blog post for Simple Money yesterday and you described a term called current account deficit. I didn't really know much about it before, so thanks for writing in. Thank you. Um, you also raised a few important and somewhat alarming points, like how India is running a big deficit, what oil price has to do with it. Can you, for the benefit of our listeners, just tell us once again what current account deficit is? Absolutely. So current account deficit is a very economics concept. And the best way to understand it is that current account equals exports minus imports plus remittances from abroad. Remittances from abroad tend to be a little small. So for practical purposes, a country like India, current account is basically exports minus imports. If we import more than we export, our current account is in deficit. If we export more than we import, it's said to be in surplus. Okay, so India currently is facing a current account deficit. Yeah. Has and it we always faced Usually, I mean, for most of our history, we have faced a current account deficit, and the biggest reason for that is we are importers of oil. But isn't almost every country who doesn't produce oil an importer of oil? Yep, that's true. That's absolutely true. Uh, but we've lived in an interesting time in the world where a lot of the world's developing markets, Vietnam, China for a long time, if you could consider it as developing, all exported goods. India, on the other hand, is a net importer of goods. Because we import so much oil that our exports can't make up for the bill. Thus, we constantly run a current account deficit. Okay, so is that, I mean, is it scary for our future? Or has anything happened in the past that raises these alarm bells? It can be scary. So, the perfect example of India's most frightening economic moment was 1991. Mm -hmm. 1991, India was very close to large-scale financial crisis. When you run a current account deficit, effectively it means money is flowing out of the country. You need to get money to come back into the country somehow because you won't have money to pay your import bills next time otherwise. Usually this money is lent to us by foreign investors. The problem with foreign investors lending you money is that anytime there are signs of economic malaise, they will stop lending you money and then you don't have money for your imports anymore. 1991, we at this point had seen the Gulf War, which started in 1990, push global oil prices to never before seen heights. 
The Indian government, after years of mismanagement, was running a very large deficit. Nobody wanted to lend the Indian government money anymore. So combined with large oil prices and the government debt, investors got scared of giving India money. The problem was, we needed that money to buy oil. Hmm. We got to a stage in 1991 where we had three weeks of foreign currency left on hand with which we could buy oil. And we needed an emergency loan from the Bank of England, from the Bank of Scott, from the Bank of Switzerland. India literally had to airlift gold to England for us to get an emergency loan from them. That sounds really scary. It was. It was a very terrifying moment for India. So how did we get out of it? Well, we got out of it with India's famous liberalization. Mm -hmm. So before 1991, India was not an easy place for foreigners to invest. There were great deals of restrictions on foreigners buying stock, owning real estate, owning any kind of asset in the country. And this becomes the famous time when Dr. Manmohan Singh opens up the Indian economy to the world. And it was more out of necessity than desire. When you have a large import bill, as India did at the time, and the money is flowing out of the country, like I said, the money has to come back in. If you want money to come back into the country, the best way for it to happen is foreigners investing in the country in real assets. So when a foreigner buys a factory, for instance, in India, we call it foreign direct investment. Now this is good because it's difficult for the foreigner to pull their money out of India because you can't liquidate that investment overnight. The other type of foreign investment that you can have in India is foreign portfolio investment or foreign institutional investment. So that's when foreigners invest in stocks, bonds, other types of financial assets in the country. We call that hot money because you don't want that much of it. It can flow out just as easily as it flows in. So in 1991, India opens up its economy to both these flows of capital and at a time when we had just three weeks of foreign exchange on hand with which to pay our oil import bills, we were managed, we managed to be saved. Well, what about remittances from Indians who live abroad and who send money back to their families? Does that constitute a large amount of money flowing? So it constitutes a significant amount of money, but it's not large enough to make a difference. So the third item in the current account, as you rightly noted, is remittances. So current account equals exports minus imports plus remittances. Remittances in India is not that large. For perspective, India runs a current account deficit. In about 2014, we ran a current account deficit of around 60 billion US dollars, which is one of our largest in history. We only re received about 10 billion US dollars in the form of remittances that year. Okay. So it seems like a stupid question to ask because I think the economy of a country is so big. I have trouble managing my personal finances, so I can't imagine how difficult it is. But why do we keep allowing this to happen again? I mean, I feel like India has teetered on this brink, retreated. And I read that in 2017, India experienced its highest deficit for four, since four years. Yep, that's absolutely true. And then gold imports went up, absolutely. manufacturing went down, and there was a crisis that everybody was crying out about. But, absolutely. Like, stupid question, but obvious one. Why do we keep allowing this to happen? Yeah. So well, the first thing to note is that current account deficits in the case of India are a vicious cycle. Something that we go into detail in the post about is how running a current account deficit causes your currency to be worth less money. When your currency is worth less money... Can you explain how? Just Absolutely. So when your current account is in deficit, it means money is flowing out of your country. Mm -hmm. uh, money flowing out of your country, in theory, means that each time people look at your currency, it is worth less. So I'll give you an example of this. If we are buying oil, oil globally is priced in dollars. In 2014, we needed one barrel of oil. And so we buy that one barrel of oil using all the rupees that we have. 
The next time we need a barrel of oil, it's effectively like our demand for dollars is going up because we need to buy dollars, use those dollars to buy oil. As our demand for dollars keeps going up, the supply of dollars stays the same, and so effect, a dollar becomes more expensive, making the rupee worth less. This is a vicious cycle. We buy a barrel of oil, our current found deficit goes up, the value of the rupee goes down, but that means that the next barrel of oil is even more expensive, and it keeps feeding on itself. This is a trap, and the only way for India to get out of this trap is to push that current account towards surplus, or at least as close to surplus as we can get. Now remember, current account exports minus imports. The only real solution to this problem that we can will work for a long time is exporting more. So can you speak a little bit more about how countries, other countries in similar positions? So we know China is a manufacturing giant exporting a large volume of goods. How did India get to a point where relative to other comparable countries, it isn't manufacturing much. Like, was there something about our policy that was different along the way that brought us here? That's a good question. This is one of those much debated topics that has been discussed since since ever, which is India went from being an agricultural economy to being an economy with a large services component, and we skipped the manufacturing stage in the middle that normally comes up. Mm-hmm. China spent several years building factories, building infrastructure, some would say very coercively, but they did it. And they got themselves into a position in the global supply chain that was impossible to get them out of. So we all know in the early 90s, China and manufactured goods in China were looked at with a negative eye, right? Made in China was said to be synonymous with this is going to fail in the next three days. They made like small trinkets, digital watches, little zips for pants, nothing fancy. But they started at the low end of the manufacturing scale and gradually moved up the value chain to the point where now China is an indispensable part of the global supply chain if you're a manufacturer. India somehow could never get the manufacturing ball to roll. And what has happened now is India imports so much from China in terms of manufactured goods. Chinese competitive companies are so competitive in terms of the manufactured goods that they produce, India can't compete. And so now we're at a stage where we have other countries have got a large head start on India in terms of manufacturing and industrialization, and we find it really difficult to compete. Why this has happened? Yeah, that's a good question. That's another topic for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, what can we do practically? Not you and I, but policymakers and uh, finance ministers. How do we drive exports up? The good news is, to drive exports up, you need to do the things that just put the economy in good health. Build infrastructure, have clear guidelines on rules, regulations, and so on. Increase the amount of skill in the economy by educating people further. And India, as a country, probably needs to attack manufacturing niches that are currently not being picked over. Like what? So, for instance, right, you could make the argument that there are some sectors of the manufacturing sector in the world that are currently not being done very well by other countries. You need to find a way to compete against other countries. And just like a business would find a small niche in which it competes against established businesses, India as a country needs to find a small niche in which it can compete against other countries. IT services on a different sector is a good example of this, where India took a low-cost approach. We competed against the rest of the world because our IT services were of good quality but very cheap. And this made all of the world's consumers of IT services come to Indian companies. We need to find something similar in manufacturing. Low cost doesn't last that long because as you get richer, the low cost advantage quickly goes away. So it's probably not that, but we need to find a niche somewhere that we can do better than anybody else in the world can. Mm. 
become a part of that global supply chain, move up the value chain so that we're producing higher valued goods, and get to a point where nobody can dislodge us from that supply chain. Okay. Okay, so this question is, you know, in the realm of speculation, but let's say we advance to a level scientifically where our dependency on oil reduces and we have something that we can generate or already have within India's borders. Does that change the nature of current account deficit for us? It does. It would be great if we had this unicorn source of energy that we can rely on. It would absolutely change because India imports a lot of oil. I mean, 60% of our imports are oil. Mm. Even more ridiculously, the other about 20 to 30% is gold, which is a little, <laughs> little crazy uh, because gold is not used for anything other than jewelry and storing in the locker. Yeah. And so if we could find that mythical source of energy, oh yeah, that, that would be great. Reducing the oil dependence for India would be huge. Okay. Um, last question, Pranshu. What do investors do? Like, how do they factor all of this macroeconomic policy into their investment-making decisions? Also, considering that there isn't a lot of vibrant debate in the media about this topic. If you Google it, you have a few articles from major publications talking about watershed moments, but there's no real in-depth discussion that is easily accessible. So what do we do when we're looking at our portfolios and figuring out what funds to buy? Absolutely. So this is a difficult issue to plan for. Investing for the long term is generally easier because your investment strategy can basically be buy it and forget it. But when you don't have confidence in the economy in the long term, that goes away. India's oil price issue, India's current account deficit, and our dependence on foreign capital inflows is a very structural part of our economy. Planning for it in the long term makes things difficult because investing in India, that means if India's long-term economic health is in doubt, you could lose all your money in the long term. Some ways to go around it are to invest in companies that do well when India's rupee is undervalued. IT companies are a good example. Any companies that make money in dollars, effectively when the rupee goes down, make more money in rupees. So IT companies are a great example of this. There are also ways for us to now invest in foreign stocks, Mm -hmm. uh, mutual funds like the Franklin Templeton US Opportunities Fund, uh, the Birla Sun Life Global Opportunities Fund. These are funds that have exposure to foreign equities. And in theory, this acts as a hedge against the Indian stock markets falling due to oil price increases. But in short, it's, it's difficult to plan for. One of the things that we all, I think, have to be a little optimistic about sometimes is that India's long-term economy will do well, because otherwise, what are we all doing here? Why are we investing in the markets? Yeah, that's a scary thought. It is right? a scary thought. It's also scary to me sometimes that some of these issues go under the table, right? Current I mean, that's what's scary. Sorry to cut you off. But no, it's absolutely, like, yeah. If we're not thinking about it, if we're not talking about it, where does the incentive for a, like a country to deal with these issues come from, except policymakers. It is. I mean, current account deficit is such a niche economic word in some ways, right? Like, you you won't hear this word bandied about except in the worlds of high and mighty finance and, like, ivory-towered economics. But if you draw a parallel to individual lives, for instance, right, it's our parents tell us this at a young age, which is your inflow has to be greater than your outflow. Absolutely. Um, How you maintain your bank balance, like, make sure your credit card bill is lower than your income. Absolutely. So, in a sense, we're just extending this theory to a country, right? We are. We are. But I think it's so easy for us to understand this on a personal level. It is consume less. Mm-hmm. India can't consume less oil. What will we do? It's the basic it's kind of like of make more money. Yeah, basically, right? It's like uh, make more money, but don't use anything to make more money. You know, yeah. 
And what can we do? Uh, it's, it's a difficult question, right? And I think the reason why it gets swept under the table so much is I think we live in a news cycle where you have to simplify a lot of financial news into easily digestible formats where the more technical your content becomes, the more difficult it is for someone to consume it. And few people are willing to take the time and energy to educate consumers off this media content about what any of these words mean. Mm. Well, thank you for educating us, good sir. I hope it worked. We deeply appreciate it. I deeply appreciate your time. Welcome back. And the breaking news is on the PNB banking fraud case. There's been a major shakeup in Punjab National Bank after the big scam was finally unearthed. 1,000 officers over three years' service in a branch have now been transferred, something that should have been done long ago. Separate cells. All right, Sindhu. Part two. We're going to tackle Punjab National Bank. Yes. Nirav Modi. Whoa. <laughs> not related to Narendra Modi. No, but who incidentally uh, was a one-time student of our own alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, really? Did you know that? I did not know that. He dropped out of Wharton. That is amazing. Yeah. We do not have a good reputation for producing individuals of we high <laughs> ethical standards, do we? We definitely don't. Okay. <laughs> Donald Trump. Nirav Modi, Lalit Modi, Narendra Modi. There's a lot of Modis running around, but what happened at Punjab National Bank, Sindhu? So this is a super fascinating case, and I think the reason why it's um, so prominently talked about in the media is because it has all the ingredients for a sensational scandal story, which is we have this man who is very prominently known, who appears in a lot of high-end magazines and media publications. He's a page three personality, uh, a very well-renowned diamond merchant who's appeared in Forbes billionaire list once. And he is caught in an 11,000 rupee crore scandal, which is almost $2 billion, which is a staggering amount. And how did all of this happen? I think that is where the real problem lies, which is Punjab National Bank essentially acted as a guarantor for loans that he took abroad. And not just him, but his company, his maternal uncle, who runs Geetanjali Gems. They all took loans from Indian banks in foreign countries, so the branches that are in foreign countries, because hmm. they had lower interest rates, they were providing the loans in dollars, and these people were buying goods, gems and pearls in dollars. Right. So it was more lucrative to get that loan from abroad than in India. And Punjab National Bank was acting as a local guarantor for them, issuing these letters of undertaking, essentially saying, hey, this man wants a loan, give it to him. And the way they did that was using SWIFT, which is the banking systems WhatsApp world. That's fascinating. So there's like a code that you have for each kind of transaction Absolutely. and they send it saying, hey, this guy is taking a loan for this amount of money. This is the credit period. He'll pay it back. And effectively then Punjab National Bank, if I understand you correctly, was saying if Nirav Modi doesn't pay you back, we're on the hook. Don't worry about it. 100% because, you know, the banks don't care about, mostly don't care about who Nirav Modi is. They care that there is this guarantee. And where does the guarantee come from? Punjab National Bank is supposed to take a collateral, which we all know, even if we try to buy a house, is that you provide a collateral that is at least equal to the value of the loan that you're taking out, which is the bank's guarantee against giving you money. Hmm. And when people just looked into this case, what they realized was that there was no guarantee, which is shocking, especially considering the volume of money that we're talking about. But it also raises a question, why would Punjab National Bank do something like this? And that's, the answer to this is that they get fees for issuing these letters of undertaking. 
And some estimates reveal that they probably made over 200 crores. That is fascinating. Just in fees. But that whose so pockets has it lined? We don't know. That is fascinating to hear. That is so crazy to me because it's it's almost like here is this... This is a public sector bank, to be clear. This is yes. effectively taxpayer money. They are guaranteeing the loans of an individual mm-hmm. with little evidence to prove that he could pay it back. Mm-hmm. Normally, a bank that's guaranteeing a loan, you would expect them to do a bit of due diligence and just see how much money they might be on the hook for. But it appears that they didn't do any of that. They didn't do any of that. And what they did do was that they let credit rollover. So when he was, or he or his company were unable to pay one loan like this, they issued another letter of undertaking for a value that was equal to the previous loan plus interest. Ah, the classic borrow money to pay the old loan back strategy. Yeah, and it's just, you know, one day they wake up and they're like, oh wow, it's 11,000 crores. We still don't know what the exact amount is. But the other issue is that the SWIFT banking system is not linked to the core banking software of the bank. Interesting. So, what does that mean? So what it means is that SWIFT sends out, you send out a message on SWIFT saying, hey, this loan, like we are guaranteeing it. The foreign bank or the branch puts the money in an Austro account, which is where you keep your like international money that Punjab National Bank uses to transact with international banks. So there's money piling up in this Nostro account, which somebody is passing on to Nirav Modi uh, at Punjab National Bank. But that entire transaction is not happening in the bank's banking system, which is what they use to monitor all their transactions. So in effect... Nobody knew. I mean, we can't say nobody knew. But most people didn't know. Most people didn't know. And it wasn't linked to the bank's MIS system. So that's, I mean, MIS reports are what you use, any company uses at the end, at shareholder meetings, board of director meetings. That's to kind of say, this is what's going on. This is our bad debt. Uh, this is our aging debt. None of that was happening. That is fascinating. So this, this raises a bunch of questions, right? It obviously yeah. raises questions of whether there is corruption, which it seems like there probably was. Yes. Which so Punjab National Bank is blaming one or two errant employees. So okay. it, it's saying that there was one employee who issued these LOUs in 2011 and he retired one or two years ago and the person who replaced him refused to issue the next letter of undertaking. And when they did an audit, they were like, oh my God, there's all this money. Hmm. But that just seems a little much. Hmm. It feels like a big story to absorb. Given the amount of money involved that there was just one person, it's possible that yeah. the person is just being scapegoated right now by the I, bank. I think right? so, and I think there's a lot of evidence. Uh, there was a good Bloomberg article where the author spoke about how in 2016, uh, after there was a big scandal in Bangladesh with the banking fraud, the RBI issued two circulars, one in November, uh, warning people against SWIFT being misused for financial Absolutely. appropriation and fraudulent transactions. And today now, I mean, we we, hear, we read about Rotomac, the pen company, uh, pulling a similar default action to the tune of 800 crores at Allahabad Bank and a few other public banks. That's incredible. So we know that this has been happening. Um, technology or like the lack of checks and audits seems like a poor excuse. Hmm. And I think what it raises is this question of like, are public banks more complacent because they know they can never fail? That's a great question. That brings me to my next point, which is how much should we demonize bankruptcy? Is this Nirav Modi's fault or is this Punjab National Bank's fault? I think, I mean, we don't, there's a lot in the story that we don't know. But if we take Nirav Modi as 
a person who you know knowingly manipulated a system then he deserves to be you know tried for it and punished for it if he deserves punishment yeah but the other side of it is like who allowed him to get away with all of this absolutely and i think that is when we fault the system and we know like punjab national bank is the second largest public bank in india and second only to the state bank of india which is a behemoth but there are public private sector banks like hdfc whose volume and you know transactional size is much larger than these banks absolutely and who probably can't afford to behave like this because they are private and they have shareholders who they are answerable to so maybe it's not even bankrupt bankruptcy as much as complacency that's causing this right i remember back in 2008 2009 we had the financial crisis and in the us and the federal reserve has to take the emergency steps of bailing out the big wall street banks mm-hmm. they let lehman brothers fail they didn't want it to fail they just didn't have a choice because they weren't able to organize the bailout in time all the people were talking about at the time and this was immortalized in, in timothy geithner who was the treasury secretary of the us at the time one of his great books about the entire financial crisis in terms of moral hazard which is if we don't let these banks fail is there a chance that in the future another bank is going to take on these type of substantial risks and just assume that eh the federal reserve or the government or in india's case the central government is going to bail me out and i won't have to be on the hook for any of these risks right it's it's almost like the idea that that capitalism without bankruptcy is like christianity without hell how how can it function this way yeah but i think what we've done is our lack i i, I agree and this is idea that you know our public banks a little cocky about this because they know that they'll always be bailed out or that they're too indian to fail because they are a part of you know government absolutely yeah. um whereas a private bank might say if i screw up once i will get really screwed over and i might have to shut down so i'm just going to be really careful mm. and then we kind of leave a provision for those things that we can't avoid which is if you're working in the financial sector someone is always going to try to outsmart it and we have to kind of be understanding of those frauds as well but this is not one of those situations this is a clear example of just pure lack of systemic you know auditing interrogation inspection it's just laziness is nirav modi on the hook here let's assume he didn't bribe these people into giving them the letters of credit because if he has bribed them this is clear fraud this is certainly illegal mm. if it's a case of bankruptcy if this is a case of nirav modi tried to pay his loans back wasn't able to pay his loans back should we lineize him Oh, that's a tough question. I think Nirav Modi has come under a bit of fire even before this scandal for other financial malpractice possibilities. Hmm. And uh, you know, there is some conjecture that he took this money and he invested it in the stock market and then lost it. Oh my god. <laughs> Which is, you know, ah. so so you take money under the pretext of um pretends of you know using it to buy pearls and diamonds yeah. and then you're doing something else with it which is also problematic absolutely um but we just don't know but what he did do was he came out a couple of days ago he's not in india right now and he came out a couple of days ago um, accusing punjab national bank saying that because they went public his ability to even repay this loan significantly decreases that's fascinating why is that because now all his assets are frozen he's being demonized and nobody is going to be easy on him 
in terms of figuring out a financial plan Absolutely. to repay this huge debt. And I suppose if you know for sure that this person has to liquidate all of the assets, you could drive the price down. Exactly. So he's stuck. Like He doesn't have a quote-unquote fair negotiating point with the assets that he already has. So I think the big... And you know, there's a scandal. He was at Davos in January, a few days before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sharing the stage with all of the world's luminaries. Yeah, and uh, people are now asking, you know, did the BJP know about this? Were they actually complicit in this? Which is, right. you know, how... Did somebody in the governmental ranks have awareness of this and just turn a blind eye to it? The BJP is saying, or some BJP party members are saying that Congress... Um, was actually responsible and this whole issue started while they were in power. Well, I think the endless cycle of uh, political mudslinging happens every time something of this magnitude happens. Yeah, and it's just, you know, I've listened, I've watched a few TV episodes and uh, listened to a few radio chats about this and there are people literally shouting uh, at each other purely because of, you know, bipartisan politics and I think this has been appropriated a little bit or to a great extent and it's, I think what we need is just a really good audit of what happened. And then some people, the Bitcoin enthusiasts, are saying that um, cryptocurrency and blockchain would never have allowed something like this to happen. Which is really funny because everything you hear about how SWIFT was used in this case sounds exactly like an Ethereum contract. Yes and no. Not next podcast. (laughs) That's our next episode. All right, in part three, we're going to discuss some of our favorite music-related poetry. Thank you, Sindhu. Thanks, Franchu. Finally now, part three, our more artistically inclined segment, we are going to share with you some of our favorite money-related poetry. Sidhu, would you like to start? I would love to start. This one's a personal favorite because it's poetic. I see, most poetry is. But this one, more so. I see. Poignant. Well, mm. I'll just let the words speak for themselves. Please. <clears throat> Have a steak hot like Alfred the Hitch. Take money like a pimp, make money like a mint. Getting money is the only time life makes sense. People like me, but people like spiders. And spiders eat flies, and you know what flies eat. And kids are the only ones that really blush. That's beautiful. Who's that by? Um, It is a piece called Young Money, Mm. written by Lil (laughs) Wanye. That's my favorite kind of (laughs) It's Young Money. We take money, it's young money. What do you have, Oh, I have a beautiful one. Uh, It's a little closer to home. Okay. Uh, I will just start without any introduction. Great. Bangla motor car dilade, ek nahi to char dilade. Mujko aeroplane dilade, dunya bhar ki seer karade. Cash de check na de, cash de check na de. Cash de o check na de, mujko bhi to. Lift Karate. That was by the one and only Adnan Sami in a beautiful ode to blatant consumerism. In five seconds, can you tell us what that means in English? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Simple Money Podcast. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the first episode. Simple Money is a portfolio tracker for your mutual funds and equities, and it works automatically by reading the statements that you get in your email. This means that all you need to do is log in, wait a few seconds, and your entire portfolio gets tracked automatically, and you don't need to do anything for it. If you're anything like me, 
you've probably messed up with a 100-page spreadsheet trying to keep track of where all your money is. And no, I don't say that because I'm very rich, I say that because I'm very disorganized. Simple Money has helped me get my life back in order, and I hope it will for you as well. Thanks so much for listening, and take care.